0: My name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, austerity two, with new Chancellor Jeremy Hunt warning of deep spending cuts. What impact will that have on a society where many people are still reeling from the effects of austerity one? Introduced by David Cameron and his Chancellor George Osborne. We'll be hearing in a moment from the Byline Times' chief European and social affairs reporter, Sean Norris. Before that, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions too. The Byline Times, our must read monthly newspaper, which has exclusive content that you can't read anywhere else. We can report without fear or favour because there's no billionaire or shadowy corporation telling us what to say. Our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. So if you can, please subscribe. To the Byline Times. More details at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Sean Norris. And Sean, as we are recording this, new inflation figures have been released, showing that the cost of living is going to feed into this already very concerning time for many people with the warnings of deep spending cuts to come.
1: Absolutely. So we've got the new inflation figures today, which say that inflation has hit 10.1%. So this is a high since July. And obviously, that's very concerning. But when you look deeper into the figures, there's an even more worrying statistic, because food inflation has hit 14.6%. And this is the highest in 42 years. So that means your groceries the day-to-day shopping that you have to do, or the big weekly shop, that's going to go up a huge amount. And of course, this is particularly concerning for those who are on the lowest incomes because they spend a bigger percentage or a bigger proportion of their income on food and essentials. And I mean, this is something we, we've all felt, right? Every time you go to the supermarket, it feels like the cost of, of food is going up and up and up. And while I know that some supermarkets have taken efforts to try and keep costs down and keep prices down we all have had that sort of feeling of like oh hold on a second my weekly shop is costing a lot more than it used to do about a year ago or six months ago
0: and people will be familiar with the rise of food banks I've spoken to people you've spoken to people who were in work people who've got jobs trying to bring up their families but who do need food banks to sustain them It isn't just a case of if you're a homeless person or if you're unemployed anymore that you need this kind of assistance.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So last month in September, I went up to Shotton in North Wales, which is the town that my family's from, and went and visited the food bank there. And and this is the message that everyone is saying, like the people in the food bank, that it's a very different group of people who are coming through the doors. Obviously, you're still getting those individuals who are, unemployed or, you know, aren't able to work for whatever reason or in temporary accommodation or facing homelessness. But increasingly, they're saying, well, we're seeing people who used to be okay, people who might have a nice house, people who might have a good car, but just can't make ends meet month after month after month. And this is particularly the case for families who might have children, or particularly someone that they're caring for, like a sick relative or an an unwell partner, are becoming more reliant on food banks. And then the more people need food banks, the more donations are required. But obviously, all of us are feeling the pinch. So we're less likely to donate to food banks. So you end up with this real vicious circle. And I think, you know, one of the statistics that I've kept coming back to this year over and over again is that 1.8 million children are now living in deep poverty. And deep poverty is when you can't afford the most basic essentials. And it's just how can we be in this position in 2022 when professionals like nurses, teachers are going to feed banks because they can't afford to feed themselves and their kids? When 1.8 million children are growing up without even access to food, it's really scary. And unfortunately, this is October. It's just going to get worse over winter as the temperatures drop, as heating bills go up. You know, you need sort of more hot meals. You can't live off salad and things in, in the winter. And I, it's a scary time.
0: Indeed, and the government has said, hasn't it, that its assistance to help people with their fuel bills over the winter is only going to last six months. After that, they're going to move to a situation where aid is more closely targeted. But that's going to mean many people who felt, well, okay, at least now energy bills are going to be covered after this six month period are going to be left to fend for themselves when it comes to heating and lighting and so on.
1: I think what's really been highlighted by this energy crisis is that it's not just the poorest households that are in trouble. It's people who have got quite nice pensions or have paid off their mortgages, but are suddenly having to dip into their savings because they can't afford their energy bills anymore. It's, it's again, it's that sort of middle-class professional who is suddenly, oh, well, I can get, you know, I've got a nice flat, I, I have a good job, but my energy bills have gone up from, well, doubled overnight. And so it's not just the kind of when we think about targeted assistance, I think the government is often thinking like those on the lowest incomes. But the fact is people who have always sort of considered themselves all right or what Theresa May called for, just about managings and now facing really, really different pressures than they were a year ago. That kind of conversation reminds me of something I was watching last night about free school meals. You know, we have children on free school meals in England when their parents earn less than 7000. But that leaves 800,000 low-income children in low-income households who aren't entitled to free school meals. And again, maybe a few years ago, they would have been just about managing. So they could get their kids to school. They could give them a, a packed lunch. But nowadays, families are finding it increasingly difficult. So the problem with targeted support is while it is always welcome, it's like, who is the target now? Because it's not necessarily who we thought it was a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, I think the threshold for accessing free school meals is a household income of £7,400 a year. There are many people on universal credits who the state acknowledges need help to live who nevertheless do not qualify for school meals. And I stand to be corrected on these figures, but I think in the London area, something like 40% of children whose families are on universal credit, do not qualify for school meals. In the West Midlands, something like 25% of children whose families qualify for universal credit don't qualify for school meals. So the threshold for this assistance can sometimes be very, very low indeed. Some of this, of course, is caused by... Global issues, isn't it? We've got rising interest rates around the world, but they have risen particularly sharply in the UK following Mm -hmm. Kwarteng's disastrous mini budget that will put up mortgage costs for people. I was speaking to somebody, it's only one person I know, but I suspect this is repeated in many households across the country who's going to be paying £300 a month extra on their mortgage, going to be paying £200 extra a month on their heating bills. If ordinary people are suddenly having to find an extra £500 a month before these latest round of spending cuts kick in, that's so much for, for ordinary people to have to, to try and manage with.
1: Absolutely. And again, it reflects that shifting issue around the cost of living crisis. So it is people who, you know, they're just about managing, so the people who have quite a nice house and have been, you know, got a mortgage on a low interest rate, are suddenly facing these huge increases at the same time that their food is going up 14.1%. If we look more broadly at austerity and the sort of impact of austerity, there's very little wriggle room for support a lot of the time. A lot of the sort of services that existed or could have given support are finding themselves really squeezed. And even one of the sort of slightly dystopic futures that we found ourselves in is this push towards something like warm banks. You know, that the councils are going to be looking at how they can provide warm banks so people can go to a warm space during the winter and not have to put their heating on at home. Well, one of the sort of suggestions for that has been libraries. But over the last 12 years, we've seen the closure of thousands and thousands of libraries. So the infrastructure that could have existed perhaps to add that kind of safety net during this very difficult time has already suffered under austerity 1.0, although whether this austerity 2.0 is new or just a continuation of the first one is up for debate, I guess.
0: Austerity 1.0 was, as many people have pointed out, a political choice by David Cameron and George Osborne following the financial crash. There were Other economies where people were more inclined to borrow money, to invest in new projects, but the government decided that its route to sound money would simply be to cut public spending. And I've spoken on this podcast to Professor Michael Marmot, who's one of the leading experts on health inequalities in this country. So that we have this astonishing situation now whereby health inequality is widening, the gap between rich and poor in terms of how long you can expect to live is growing. So a man who lives in the Blackpool North constituency will die on average 17 years earlier than someone who lives in a posh London parliamentary constituency. 17 years, the life expectancy of women has declined in one in five areas in England. Now, there are many things that feed into that, but we know that poverty is one of the key determinants. So this is not just about people struggling to get by, maybe not being able to have Netflix or Sky television or whatever. This is truly a matter of life and death.
1: That's this really scary thing. And I think the health inequality data that the Mar- Marmot Review and have come up with is some of the most shocking data that I've ever seen. And it's also not just about the life expectancy, it's a healthy life expectancy. So men and women living in, in much poorer or more deprived constituencies can see a longer period of their lives where they're very ill or struggling with health conditions than someone who's in a wealthier constituency. And this is where you get into all of the ways that it's interconnected. Because obviously, if you are living longer with a severe health condition, then you're going to need more support from the health service. And of course, the health service has seen real-term funding cuts since 2010, with the exception of the coronavirus pandemic, the lockdown period, when there was a lot of money pumped into the health service. So between 2009 and 10, and 2019 and 2020, the growth in NHS budgets was 1.1% a year, which was the lowest that it had been for for decades, and obviously a lot lower than it was under the new Labour government. And already this year, we've got new analysis from the NHS Confederation that confirms that extra costs needed for the health service means that it's facing a real terms cut in funding of between 4.4 billion and 9.4 billion, depending on inflation. And so what we've got is a situation where people who are living in more deprived communities are getting sicker, are living with long-term health conditions for longer, and yet the NHS is struggling to meet the demands of those increased health needs, which then means that people don't get the treatment they need or are waiting longer for the treatment they need, which means they get sicker and which means they die younger. So you can really see how austerity is not just one issue about funding this department or funding benefits or making sure housing is it's all of them all of them come together to create these health crises to create these early deaths and um there was a really really shocking piece of research that came out a couple of weeks ago which I reported on for Binance times which found that there were 330,000 excess deaths in the years of austerity 1.0 so between 2010 and 2020 and you know that's a astonishing figure obviously it's a longer period of time but that is greater than the coronavirus death toll and I think we really need to be concerned about the threats to more cuts. I mean, Hunt has said that he doesn't want to cut public spending that impacts on public services, but I just, I'm not sure how that's possible. And that's, as I said, cut MPs' pay. like Maybe save some money that way.
0: Yeah, sadly, uh, nothing like the amounts we're talking about, though, really. And so the Conservatives will say, well, look, we did increase funding for the NHS 1.1% a year, but the history of the NHS tells us that – Inflation for the NHS rises at a faster rate because people are living longer, their health needs are more complex. So the NHS, as you say, it faced a real terms cut. And I've recorded on the podcast before about how the NHS, even before COVID, was on the brink of breakdown. COVID has put additional pressures on it. We've got these incredible waiting lists now for people waiting for elective surgery and anybody who has had dealings with the NHS directly over the last year or two will know that it is in an ongoing state of crisis.
1: Absolutely you know I think we can always pay tribute to the incredible workers of the NHS you know the nurses who are going to food banks to feed their families while they're you know saving families lives and the incredible staff the doctors and the consultants who are all working so hard and under such pressure But it is true that the NHS is in crisis and that crisis isn't going away. And I also wanted to make the point, again, about how this is like an interconnected issue, because one of the big features of austerity in between 2010 and 2020 were the cuts to local authorities. Those cuts were just huge. They were unbelievable. So in London, local government saw the core funding it receives from central government reduced by 63 percent in real terms. Already... City councils across the country are still facing huge pressures on savings. Manchester City Council is facing cuts in the next financial year of 41 million. London Borough of Newham needs to make cuts and savings of 43 million by April 2023. There's a sort of a bit of an argument about what the actual kind of overall spending cut was but it's generally considered to be around 49% the cuts from to central government to local government spending so what does this mean it means domestic violence services are squeezed it means services to support people with drug and alcohol addiction are squeezed it means things like parks and libraries those kind of well-being services that means you can get out and about and enjoy your local area have been squeezed obviously there are some areas of funding from local councils which are statutory such as children's social services, but other ones that could improve health, that could improve well-being, that could make people live longer, healthier, happier lives, have lost a lot of their funding. And again, you see that as a pipeline towards increased pressure on the NHS. If your local council can't really afford to fund something like a domestic abuse support services, then that means that women and children in those households are going to have Health needs that have to be addressed in a crisis situation, rather than dealing with them at a sort of prevention point. Same with drug and alcohol. Same with things like libraries, those kind of services that that help improve wellbeing. So I think, again, we've kind of got this really difficult situation where everything is very interconnected, and where we've got a perfect storm of the international situation, the crisis that this government has pretty much created from itself through this mini budget. And the long term effect of austerity over the last 12 years, plus the pandemic, plus war in Ukraine, you know, it's and some of those things are external pressures, things that we can't really sort of say, oh, you know, that's not the government's fault. But some of them are definitely a result of choices made by successive conservative administrations.
0: When the national insurance increases were first mooted, this was hailed by Boris Johnson as an opportunity, a once in a lifetime opportunity to deal with the issue of social care. When people need social care at the moment, very often, if you've got your own house, you might have to sell that to fund social care. And the idea was that henceforward, your cost of social care would be capped so that people didn't have to sell their houses to pay for care. Now, throughout Liz Truss's campaign, she said she would reverse the national insurance rise And then now in a double U-turn, it's been reimposed by Jeremy Hunt, the new Chancellor. However, we're now hearing suggestions that the cap that the rising national insurance contributions was meant to cover may be postponed for a year. Who knows how long a year will really be? And I just think of all those people who are dealing with perhaps a relative who has dementia who are struggling with the practical impact of that, now finding that the hope that they might hold on to the family house, that that hope has been dashed now.
1: It's the cruelty of broken promises and broken commitments. And I think one of the areas I'm really interested in is when we don't have a social care system that is well-funded and functioning and allows people to make real informed choices, what often happens is the burden of care and You know, I appreciate that's quite a strong word. A lot of people wouldn't see it as a burden, but it is, it is a huge amount of work, falls onto women. It falls onto daughters or sisters or wives to to kind of do that that care work and it's unpaid and it's unvalued. And one of the big issues that we've been seeing in terms of employment patterns is women, middle-aged women coming out of the workforce. And in one case, this was kind of framed as all these like middle aged women going on cruises and (laughs) living their best lives. And I really hope that is the case for some of them, (laughs) But for a lot of them, it's because they're taking on this care, this additional care of elderly relatives or, or also of grandchildren. And I think that we've got this real issue where we're kind of outsourcing something that needs to be looked after by the state to onto women's shoulders And obviously, that's a generalisation, like men are obviously taking on that care work too, but it is overwhelmingly women who both working in the sector and who do the unpaid care work. One of the issues initially, even with the national insurance contribution rise, was that it wasn't going to fund social care for a couple of years anyway. Like The first part of that money was to help fund this deficit in the NHS. But yeah, you're completely right. It's something we are all going to have to deal with. Like every single person in this country is going to have to deal with social care at some point in their lives, because we all have either our own health or the health of loved ones to take into consideration. And yet it is always being treated as an afterthought. And that afterthought is not just in the fact that it's underfunded or that the white paper to deal with it moved around so much that it seem, it's seen as the, the quick and easy thing to delay or push onto the back burner. The afterthought is also in the way that we treat the workforce, you know, that care workers are so, so low paid. They're on such insecure work. They're often on zero hour contracts. They're often on just above the minimum wage. And we sort of don't really value this sector. We don't value this work. And that is indicative across the way that workers are treated, how unpaid carers are treated, and how the whole policy area is treated as it's like, ah, oh gosh, we better sort this out, but not today, not today, not today, not today. And, and then years go by and it's still not sorted.
0: Talking about the interconnectedness of things, there's been research recently talking about why so many people over 50 are what's classed as economically inactive. There had been a a shift in previous years whereby more older people were working. That appears now to be in decline. Some of it may be because, as you say, people in their 50s, 60s may be having to care for older parents who have dementia and other conditions. But there's also evidence as well that many of those people in the over 50 age group have ongoing health conditions and need support which isn't there in the workplace and crucially isn't there in the NHS. Yet if we want to generate growth in the economy which the government says it does then we need to support those people back into work but at a time of cuts when the NHS is already on its knees it's hard to see where that support's going to come from.
1: I think it goes back to what we were saying near the beginning of this conversation about the The sort of health inequalities and the fact that people are living longer with severe health conditions, particularly if they're living in deprived areas or on low incomes. And, you know, one of the sort of constant arguments that come out over and over and over again about benefits and universal credit and welfare is that we need to get people back into work. We need to get people working and off benefits. And this both ignores the fact that so many people are on in work benefits because of a low pay, precarious working culture but also that some people just can't work, like, and that's okay. Some people have health conditions that mean they are unable to go to work or they have caring responsibilities that mean they are unable to go to work. And those people need to be supported by the state and by a system that values every single individual for what they bring to to life, to to their families, to their friends, to their loved ones, and, and not see everybody as a kind of worker bee who can be measured by how much GDP they're generating every minute of every day. But I do agree that it's too easy for workplaces to see people with additional health needs as a barrier as opposed to thinking about how we can make work work for people who have various health needs or who need extra support and actually really enrich our workplaces by being more diverse and more open as opposed to kind of shutting things down as we often do.
0: The government will say that the money simply isn't there. So we do have to cut our cloth accordingly. Where do you stand on that?
1: I do very much believe in a high tax, high welfare society. And in fact, every time I pay my own tax bill as a self-employed freelancer, I'm like, I believe in a high tax, high welfare society to sort of lessen the pain of having to pay tax. But I, I, you know, I do think that there's a huge amount of opportunity to introduce taxes on wealth on those who are earning vast amounts of money or storing vast amounts of money. And so I'm very supportive of Labour's policy to end the non-DOM tax status. You know, to bring in that wealth that is being generated and to use it to fund public services and to create a fairer and more equal country. I'm also in favor of windfall taxes. Again, like that was a Labour policy which the conservatives have sort of brought on board. And I also think we do you know, need to borrow to invest in infrastructure. The infrastructure in this country is really struggling a lot of the time, and we know that investing in green infrastructure particularly is absolutely crucial, not just to our economic future, but to our country's future and to our globe's future. You know, we're in this climate crisis, and if we don't invest in green infrastructure and green jobs, we're going to be in real trouble. And yet at the same time, that can really generate work, generate productivity and create a a wealthier, healthier society.
0: Many economists do say, don't they, if you give rich people more money, perhaps through tax cuts, if you give rich people more money, they save it because they can. If you give poor people more money, they spend it because they have to. And that actually generates more energy in the economy. Trickle down, which was one of the pillars of trustonomics, obviously now reversed, Mm. doesn't work. And giving ordinary people more money in their hands is generally acknowledged, I think, by most mainstream economists to be a sure way of ensuring economic growth.
1: Absolutely. And again, it almost takes us right back to the beginning of this conversation, which is why when we look at these food inflation statistics, we know that that impacts those on lower incomes more because they spend a greater proportion of their money on essentials. So yeah, when you give people with smaller incomes money, it gets spent. It doesn't get sort of corded away in little special places <laughs> where it can't ever be spent and it to enrich the economy.
0: Sean, thanks very much indeed. Sean Norris, the Chief European and Social Affairs Reporter of the Byline Times. You can read more from Sean in the latest print edition of the Byline Times and also online at bylinetimes.com, which is where you'll find details on how to subscribe to the Byline Times. Don't forget that paying for the monthly newspaper, which is a great read in its own right, helps to fund. This podcast. So go on. If you haven't done it already, please go and do it. Head over to bylinetimes.com and take out a subscription. Substart for as little as £3 a month. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye bye.